Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Many migrants heading to the southern border are seeking asylum. Coming up, we look at the history behind helping asylees and examine what has changed in recent years. We'll also hear the story of a local family caught up in the U.S. immigration system. Samir Mahmood is an American citizen, but his parents aren't. And in the last year, they've had to talk about the chance one or both of them could be deported. We'll talk with Samir about the uncertainties and what's next for his family. That's coming up. First, large-scale immigration raids were expected in major U.S. cities this weekend. President Trump had promised to deport millions of people living in the country illegally, with immigration authorities known as ICE focusing on families who entered the country recently and who have deportation orders. But there are widespread reports those raids didn't materialize. For more, joining us by phone is Abigail Hausloner, who's a national reporter at The Washington Post, focusing on immigrant communities in America. Abigail, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So what exactly happened on Sunday? Well, not a whole lot. Uh, The whole country, you know, immigrant communities um, and lawyers and activists in some major cities across the country had really braced themselves for these anticipated ICE raids. Uh, You know, people had been preparing uh, for days, uh, you know, practicing, you know, to make sure they knew what to do uh, in case they were arrested. And then nothing really materialized. Now, here in Connecticut, um, leaders in our major cities, uh, Bridgeport, Hartford, New Haven, uh, were focused on helping uh, those who were fearful, even though uh, Connecticut cities weren't on the list, so to speak. So who uh, was being targeted? What city specifically? Well, ICE never confirmed exactly what cities, but as we understood it from previous plans that had kind of leaked out, uh, the cities uh, that where they were likely to go after families uh, were um, Baltimore, Denver, Houston, Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York City, uh, Miami, and uh, New Orleans, uh, although uh, because of the hurricane uh, that sort of made landfall over the weekend, uh, there was uh, talk that you know New Orleans would be uh, avoided because under ICE policy, technically, they are not supposed to be conducting enforcement operations uh, during natural disasters. Mm. So you mentioned uh, major cities in the U.S., uh, New York City being one of them. Uh, There are reports that ICE agents did show up in a couple of neighborhoods and no arrests uh, happened because people weren't answering the door. And that was all part of uh, some of the education that the uh, those who are undocumented uh, living in communities, that's what they heard from even uh, New York City uh, Mayor de Blasio's office. That's right. Uh, de Blasio and several other mayors across the country, um, the mayor of Chicago, for one, uh, Atlanta, um, Los Angeles, I believe, San Francisco. Uh, th- this was a refrain being echoed by you know, uh, liberal mayors in some of these cities, uh, police chiefs, and, and also, of course, activists and immigration attorneys. Uh, there was a 
widespread effort uh, beforehand after the president sort of telegraphed that these these raids were going to be happening, there was a widespread effort by activist groups uh, to really educate people about their rights. Uh, and one of those rights is that you actually don't have to open the door for ICE agents um, who are bearing their uh, typical warrant for an ICE arrest, and that's because it's not a criminal warrant. Um, you know, activists say that ICE agents often try to deceive the, the people whose you know, homes they're trying to enter, uh, but technically uh, they do not have the ability to force their way into someone's home unless they have a criminal warrant. Uh, and so uh, immigrants being targeted by ICE for deportation uh, have a right to decline to answer the door, and that's one of the key things that uh, lawyers and activists were trying to get out there. And now in New York, as, as you mentioned, we heard from city officials that there were ICE agents spotted in a couple of places on Saturday night uh, in Harlem and Manhattan and also in a neighborhood of Brooklyn, uh, and that they were knocking on doors in an area uh, that's predominantly immigrants, um, but that their, you know, their door knocking didn't really yield anything. Uh, and we, we don't know now if this was part of the planned, you know, mass arrest operation, or if this was just part of ICE's everyday activities, because, you know, it's important to keep in mind that ICE, you know, as part of its uh, normal operations, does conduct enforcement uh, activities in which they, you know, they go after people who have been ordered, deported from the country, uh, and they make those arrests uh, and try to have them deported. Abigail Hauslander is on the phone with me. She's a national immigration reporter for the Washington Post. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live as we reflect on uh, these, uh, what was supposed to be uh, um, widespread immigration raids that President Trump had announced would happen uh, on Sunday. Uh, those did not materialize. Uh, we're getting a, a listener tweet, Abigail. Uh, the, the listener writes, they'll still happen and they should absolutely happen, but you don't warn your targets. You're coming for them ahead of time. You do it when they least expect you. How unusual was it for President Trump to uh, you know, announce this? And what does ICE think about that? Well, for President Trump, it's not unusual. But in general, uh, pertaining to such operations, it absolutely is unusual. Um, and, you know, we've heard from members of the administration privately, from uh, people in ICE privately, and, and certainly uh, from past official, uh, retired officials publicly, uh, that this is a big no-no. You generally, in law enforcement actions, do not uh, announce the law enforcement action and the time and date that it's going to take place, uh, because obviously, you know, if there are certain people who you're targeting, this, you know, gives them a, a heads up, and, you know, it, uh, law enforcement officers will say, that the element of surprise in uh, a law enforcement raid or arrest is, you know, pretty key if you're trying to ensure that the person you're going after, uh, you know, remains in the place where you think they are or where you expect them to be. Um, now, tr uh, the president has has made this announcement now a couple of times. Uh, on Friday, it was just the latest time that he said that uh, these big raids are going to happen. You know, he had actually, uh, he, the government has been teasing uh, this operation for, uh, you know, weeks. Um, back in the middle of June, 
uh, the president said, we're going to do this big operation. We're going to arrest millions of people. Uh, we're going to go after families uh, who are in the country illegally uh, and deport them. And then, you know, it was only after making that announcement that there was this big outcry from Democrats and activists and others. Uh, and then the president uh, backed down and he said, actually, we're going to postpone it uh, to give Republicans and Democrats a chance to reach an agreement on immigration reform. But if that doesn't happen, we're going to launch this operation. You know, and then a few weeks later, he sort of was alluding to it again, threatening it, saying it was coming soon. Uh, and then finally said, OK, it's happening Sunday. And then uh, lo and behold, it did not happen. There's another consequence to uh, announcing that these uh, raids were going to happen, uh, not just uh, giving, tipping off people who have deportation orders to stay underground, so to speak, but even the idea of the safety of these ICE agents. I'm looking at your latest story for the Washington Post where uh, the acting ICE director referred to an attack in Tacoma, Washington, where a man who had previously pr protested at a detention center, returned there with a rifle and incendiary devices. Police um, said that officers fatally shot him. That's right. Well, the acting director of ICE, uh, you know, w did, certainly did not uh, condemn the president, his boss, uh, but he did say that, you know, announcing that he, he wasn't going to confirm whether this operation was underway. He wasn't going to say when it was going to happen, uh, because doing so could really endanger the lives of his officer. Um, you know, so if we connect the dots, he's sort of saying, well, uh, you know, Trump may have put his officers in danger by saying this is when it's going to happen. Uh, and yeah, he, he was when he referred to uh, this attack in Tacoma, Washington, where a man uh, tried to attack an ICE detention facility uh, and managed to set a car on fire uh, before it was fatally shot by police, you know, he was, uh, the acting director tried to sort of attribute that to, you know, the really uh, strong criticism that ICE has gotten from some people, including lawmakers, uh, you know, you see people on social media who are calling ICE agents Nazis and ICE detention camps, uh, you know, concentration camps. Uh, and his argument was, you know, that's going so far and, and that's inflaming people uh, to take, you know, dangerous actions like this man in Tacoma. Mm -hmm. Uh, how does this fit into the, I guess, the broader uh, picture of immigration enforcement under the Trump administration? Is the strategy to make people fearful? Uh, will this deter uh, migrants who are trying to come into this country? Uh, what do we know, Abigail? By now, certainly a lot of people uh, argue that, yes, you know, scaring immigrants, uh, you know, trying to spread fear is certainly uh, one of the big objectives here uh, as a deterrent mechanism. Uh, the Trump administration has said, you know, itself that, you know, these heavy handed tactics uh, that it has employed in some places, you know, such as separating children from their parents, uh, putting lots of people into detention facilities at the border and so on, uh, that they hope that these things will act as deterrents, um, you know, and that people will decide that, no, this is too horrible for me to uh, go through, so I'm not going to try to make this journey uh, up from Central America and across the border into the United States. Uh, and, you know, I think you, I talked to some activists and lawyers yesterday who said, yeah, well, that's kind of working. You know, people uh, certainly uh, in anticipation of these latest 
raids uh, that, you know, didn't ha- yet happen, uh, were really terrified. And there were people who were just staying indoors all weekend. Uh, you know, that there were news reports from around the country of, you know, immig- predominantly immigrant neighborhoods in some of these cities that were just sort of dead quiet on Sunday as people waited for, you know, the ICE agents who they were expecting to come. Abigail Hauslaner, again, is a national reporter at The Washington Post. Uh, Abigail, thank you for joining us today uh, to give us an update on, again, uh, what was reported or announced that were to be uh, widespread immigration raids in major cities across the U.S. That did not materialize. uh, But as we know, um, ICE works uh, every day to regularly arrest and remove immigrants uh, who, uh, once a judge has signed off on a deportation order. So um, I guess it remains to be seen what will happen this week. Thank you, Abigail, for joining us. My pleasure. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I wanted to get some uh, local perspective now. Uh, in studio with me is Anelsa Diaz, who's a managing attorney for Greater Hartford Legal Aid. Anelsa, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you heard uh, Abigail from The Washington Post uh, break down for us uh, what uh, did and did not happen on Sunday. Uh, you represent uh, clients, some of them who are uh, undocumented, who come here for many different reasons. Uh, this strategy by the Trump administration, is it working? Is it effective by making people fearful that they should not be here? People are absolutely fearful. And and yes, to some degree, it is working because people are afraid to come out. They're afraid to seek help. And even when they have a legal consultation, they're told that they might have some relief available to them. Some are afraid of even putting their name in the system. They recognize and understand that by filing an application um, for a U visa or a VAWA self-petition or whatever the case may be, if they don't have an order of removal pending, that is now alerting officials to their presence in the country, their location, and you know exactly what they're doing. You mentioned a couple of different uh, programs, including the U visa. Can you d- uh, briefly describe what those are? Sure. So the U visa is a application that is available for victims of crimes. So if someone has been here in the United States and they have been a victim of a crime and their enumerated list of crimes that Um, would make the person eligible, and that person has reported the crime to law enforcement and has cooperated with the investigation of that crime, they may be eligible for a U visa application. And what that would require is for the law enforcement officials to confirm that this person, A, was a victim of a qualifying crime, and B, that they did in fact cooperate in the investigation of the crime. How difficult is it to find uh, the evidence to persuade an immigration uh, judge that this person, their claims are valid? Because we, again, hear um, often um, from the administration that a lot of these claims are, quote, bogus. Well, certainly we we don't file applications that we believe are bogus, but absolutely there are all the applications are reviewed with an eye towards skepticism and fraud, um, and that's just the way the um, agency works. And s- most of the applications that we do are through USCIS, so we file affirmative applications, but as well, um, we help folks who are facing deportation and removal in court and um Judges, you know, they're there to find out if the person has some relief available. And in court, it's a little bit different. If you have the potential to file for something that you may be eligible for, the court may be uh, inclined to postpone the matter and hold off on issuing orders until the application has been adjudicated. With the affirmative applications, there is a very high bar to be met in terms of evidence, more so than ever. 
It used to be that uh, when you applied for humanitarian relief, the uh, individuals who were trained to review those applications at the Vermont Service Center really took a different approach to these applications. Um, they were more lenient with fee waivers, for example, um, with f- different forms of evidence that might be available to the victim. But it, we're finding more and more that um, different forms of evidence are being rejected, or despite submitting ample forms of evidence, we're still getting requests for additional evidence or um, indications that the case is going to be denied. Mm. I mentioned you're with Greater Hartford Legal Aid. Uh, in Connecticut, um, there is actually a toolkit that was developed to help uh, families where there might be some members who are undocumented. Um, if separation happens, what happens to uh, the children? Can you talk about um, how Connecticut's taken uh, this kind of of, of stance uh, to help families? Because again, ICE is out there doing their job every day, not just when President Trump announces that they may be doing raids. That's right. So Greater Hartford Legal Aid, um, we developed last year um, a something called a standby guardianship tool that allows for um, families who have undocumented parents to assign a designated custodian or guardian for their child who may be a U.S. citizen. So after the new administration took effect, people immediately started to recognize that people need to prepare for what could come. And so we assisted in creating some of these forms in both English and Spanish, which were then adopted um, by the governor's office in creating something called a family preparedness kit. And in that kit, it includes the standby guardianship materials in English and Spanish instructions for that, in addition to just giving a lot of information to families about what to do, how to do it, how to plan ahead, how to let um, the proposed guardian know of your children's uh, allergies and school schedules and things that you know a lot of people maybe haven't given thought to before this. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. We're going to be hearing about uh, one particular family caught up in the system uh, just after our break. Uh, David calling from Woodbury. David, we just have under a minute. Go ahead. Oh, hello, everybody. This is just an outrage. Whatever happened to bring us your tired, your huddled masses? Well, they're here. They should have a path, an open path to citizenship and be completely free from from fear of, of, of all of this. Well, that's, that's all that's all I is to say right now. Well, David, uh, thank you for your call. Uh, certainly there are um, Connecticut residents who share David's opinion. There are others who say, look, it's cut and dry. If you have legal authorization, you should be able to live here. If not, you need to go back. What would you say to them? I would say it's not that cut and dry at all because there are many people here who may have the ability to obtain documentation and may not be aware of it, or they're having difficulty obtaining it because they don't have an attorney, um, they're not aware of the system and how it works. And so there are plenty of folks here right now that could qualify and receive documentation if they only knew or had access to it. Anelsa Diaz, Managing Attorney for Greater Hartford Legal Aid. She's with me in studio as we continue to look at uh, the latest regarding uh, immigration and enforcement in our country. Uh, Immigration reform has largely centered on the southern border and deporting migrants who enter the country without authorization. But this is just a small part in America's so-called broken immigration system. After the break, we'll talk with a young man who's an American citizen 
but his parents are at risk of deportation. You can join us too, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, often detains people who have deportation orders or when a federal immigration judge rules that an individual be removed. In some cases, he or she appeals that court order and they receive a stay of removal. This happened to the mother of Quinnipiac University student Samir Mahmood last August. But today, his parents are back in immigration court to hear how their case will proceed. Uh, Samir is joining us by phone. Samir, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you so much for having me. How are you? I'm doing well. So, so tell us, before uh, we learn a little bit about your family's backstory, what happened uh, last year that uh, led to your mother uh, being very close to being deported? So as many immigrants, my parents came for a better life to America, and they ended up coming to New York City and then ultimately moving out to Connecticut for the future of my education. And so what happened last year is over the last few years, they've been checking in with ICE, like a lot of immigrants do when they have cases hearing. But for some reason, ICE, we have one, my mother's case got denied, her first uh, case. Technically, you're supposed to have about 30 days until you could appeal. We did appeal with the Board of Immigration, also known as the BIA, but ICE decided, because last year ICE was really strict on what they were doing, so last year ICE decided, you know what, let's just... Uh, detain this lady and put an ankle bracelet and slash GPS monitor on her, and we'll deport her in about two months, exactly about five days before your son's first your son's first day of college as a first generation college student, and also five days before his uh, 18th birthday. Mm. So your parents came here in the 90s. Um, they met in uh, in New York City. Yep, they met in New York City. Uh, and so uh, they decided to uh, stay. I understand that uh, your mother's uh, arrival to this country, she overstayed her visa, but your father had a, a different a different story? Yeah, my father came about seven to eight years prior to my uh, mother coming here. He came for as a political uh, refugee because Bangladesh, the country of origin both my parents are from, is a very corrupt slash very politically broken country. My dad uh, filed for asylum here, and now after his case got denied around two, uh, 1999, but in 2011 the case got reopened. And so uh, today, after so many years, is the final hearing for that case. And they decided to combine both my mother's case and my mom's, uh, my dad's case together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, a lot of uncertainty for you and your family. Uh, when your parents decided to move here, uh, they made a living, as you said, to uh, raise money that you could go to college, and, and you are a first-generation college student. I mean, how has this impacted um, you know, your first year in school and your families each and every day, not knowing that if they'll be able to continue to live here? I mean, last year when the deportation order came and we were doing our hunger strike and it was about the 24th or 23rd hour out of our 48-hour hunger strike before she had to be at JFK to be on that plane, it affected me tremendously because I was, I was on the verge of maybe even dropping out of college, like withdrawing my registration slash financial aid because my mother's not going to be there and I want to be where my parents are. And so we, there was a pact that if, if it's like the 47th hour, and she had to be on her way to JFK that I was going to withdraw from the university and go be basically be deported with her, even though I'm an American citizen. Mm. And so it affected me tremendously throughout the year of my first year of college. It's been, it's been a, a stress on me, 
in the back of my head. My parents, there's always a deadline slash countdown going on in the back of your head. Even though it was a year ago and I had a year of like technically quote-unquote freedom, I still had that deadline slash timeline in the back of my head. I still had to meet with lawyers. I still met with politicians who were still keeping up the fight for my mother and father. And yet, um, you're just one family of, of many uh, that are dealing with uh, a different uh, step in the process uh, to have a legal authorization in this country. You know, under the Obama administration as well as the Trump administration, um, ICE often says that they're looking to go after people who have uh, committed a crime or who are deemed dangerous. Uh, do either of those descriptions apply to your parents, Samir? Not at all. My parents, my mom's a middle-aged Bengali woman. She's the sweetest person you'll ever meet. She doesn't even speak English that well, but she goes by, and she doesn't even have a she doesn't even have a driver's license, so she can't even commit any crimes within vehicles or any. She doesn't even jaywalk. She, I, I'll, I'll admit to jaywalking, but she doesn't. My dad, on the other hand, has no crimes, nothing. My parents are both clean. They're both just overstayed tourist visas who just wanted a better life and wanted to flee from Bangladesh. We have an attorney here with us in studio, Anelsa Diaz, managing attorney at Greater Hartford Legal Aid. Uh, maybe you could uh, clear up some confusion, uh, because unless you're in the system, it's hard to understand how it operates. If uh, uh, Samir's parents were to go back to Bangladesh, could they apply for uh, some kind of authorization? Would they be able to come back in a, a short time frame? Likely not. I mean, it would depend on various factors, and I can't speak to their particular case without knowing the facts and the underlying um, details. But certainly when folks are removed or deported from the country, it makes it extremely difficult for them to ever return. Um, but in the event that they can return, it would take a very long time for them to be able to do so. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. James is calling from New London. James, go ahead. Hi, uh, I was calling because um, you're framing the conversation a lot on the effects that um, the Trump administration is having on immigration, and I think what he what he is doing is exposing um, Congress for not doing something to, you know, make the lines clearly drawn so we can get people immigrants to come in legally smoothly. Um, and without, uh, I don't know, a lot of glitches. Mm. And that's true. I mean, there has been an action uh, from Congress for decades, not just under the Trump administration. James, what would you like to see change? Um, I don't know. It's, it's obviously a complicated issue. And we elect these, we elect, we elect our congressmen to figure out that they should be the experts on it and be able to figure out a way to have more immigrants. If we need more immigrants, they should open the borders and and, and make the, uh, the whole process smoother. Well, James, thank you for your call. I'll go back to Anelsa Diaz. Uh, James comments that uh, uh, President Trump is just showing an action uh, by Congress. But let's talk about the people, because it's people that are affected by these policies. Uh, you know, when he mentioned uh, allowing, if there's a, the need to allow more immigrants into this country, what about the, the millions that are already here that are, that have uh, productive jobs, that have not committed any crime, that are looking for some pathway to citizenship? Uh, you know, this is something that's been talked about for years, as I mentioned. For years. And of course, um, he, he is correct that 
we are waiting for Congress to come up with some kind of immigration reform. That's been something that's been in the works for a long time now. But it's very easy to shift the blame and say, you know, it's Congress's job to do this. And I'm, you know, I'm not responsible as the president of the United States. Certainly, um, the president has the ability to shape and and encourage certain um, actions and behaviors and something like this tweeting that ICE is going to be out in the community targeting families is certainly not the kind of thing that would encourage, you know, people to behave that way. Uh, Samir is with us, Samir Mahmoud, whose parents are going to be in immigration court later today, um, a merits hearing, uh, which is to find out if uh, their asylum case moves forward, if they can stay in this country. Samir, what's, what's next for your family? What's next is hopefully we win today as the final, like you said, the merit slash final hearing is today. I hope we do win because it's been, uh, I believe, over a 20-plus year fight. My parents are starting to get worn out by it. I'm starting to feel the side effects. I'm feeling uh, worried about my parents every day waking up, seeing the, the tense tenseness of their face. The t- like I said the earlier, the countdown that's in the back of their head. We came close to last year being separated, even though... The this, this separation is not just happening at the border, borders, it's also happening inland, for instance, in the state of Connecticut, New York, other, Ohio, all, all the other states like that, but it just made us stronger. And so today, I hope that strength brings us and the uh, hopefulness of the great judge and the uh, God being on our side to hopefully rule in favor, as we're going to have hundreds of, we have hundreds of thousands of people in support of the case. Well, Samir, I thank you uh, for telling us about your family, and uh, we'll wait to hear what happens with your parents, but we appreciate your time today here on Where We Live. Thank you so much. Uh, Again, with me here in studio is Anelsa Diaz, who's a managing attorney at Greater Hartford Legal Aid. Uh, Tell us more about uh, about the clients that you serve. I mentioned uh, that there are, represent uh, people who uh, face domestic violence or are fleeing uh, extreme violence. Uh, um, I'm just curious if you could tell us more about um, some of uh, the people, where they come from, and uh, you know what the process has been like so far for them. So we serve a very diverse population. Our coverage area is the Greater Hartford um, County, so that's approximately 22 towns and cities. And so we see a wide range of of different immigrant communities that we work with, and we focus our resources on victims of both domestic violence and sexual assault. And our immigration unit currently serves those folks in humanitarian applications. So, for example, I mentioned the U visa previously. Um, There's also the VAWA self-petition, and there's other forms of relief called the T visa or asylum application, which I know you'll talk a little bit more about later. Um, And there are also some defenses available in immigration court as well. But our office really focuses our resources because of the limited resources that we have on really helping those people who have been victims of crimes, Mm -hmm. including children who've been abused, abandoned, or neglected in something called special immigrant juvenile status. And we focus those resources on helping those most vulnerable people who are here um, often undocumented or um, with some kind of mixed status in uh, adjusting their status. When we hear uh, that people are experiencing abuse or domestic violence, uh, how are there cases where a perpetrator uses uh, that person's immigration status uh, against them so that they don't come forward? Absolutely. Being an immigrant in this country, you're in a very vulnerable position. 
So abusers take advantage of that. They're fully aware that the person is in a vulnerable position. Um, They threaten to call ICE on them. They threaten to have them deported and separated from their children. And that is a very, very strong threat that is very effective because, you know, there's the fear of being removed, but even greater so is the fear of being separated from your children for a lot of our clients. That is something that, you know, then deters them from contacting the police when they could, in fact, have the right to do that. And they're just afraid that the abuser will be correct, that the police will side with them and that the police will not assist them because of their status. Uh, We heard a a caller mention uh, Congress. Um, I'm just curious in terms of our congressional delegation, are members uh, working to help uh, clients such as yours who um, are experiencing domestic violence, are looking for a, a type of visa that allows them to remain here out of danger? Well, absolutely. We get a lot of support from um, our state and our governor and our, you know, Congress. So we recently had um, the legislature approve a new revision in our law that would allow children who are abusive and neglected to apply for um, assistance beyond age 18 because there was something that was occurring in our state where we had a gap Um, for children beyond 18 who were still eligible for immigration relief up until age 21. So understanding that um, for special immigrant juvenile status applications, the state court has to make a finding of abuse, abandonment, or neglect before the child can file with immigration. What was happening is the children who were aging out of the system in terms of our state laws were no longer able to apply for that immigration relief that may have been available to them. So we were able to petition our legislature to change that law after appealing a a case from our office that went all the way up to the Connecticut Supreme Court. And the legislature heard our pleas, and they made those revisions. And now we have the ability to petition for children who are 18, 19, and 20 um, for those findings that will allow them to file with USCIS for special immigrant juvenile status. Anelsa Diaz, again, is a managing attorney at Greater Hartford Legal Aid. Anelsa, thanks for coming in to explain uh, some of the work uh, that you and your colleagues are doing uh, to help uh, specific individuals living uh, in our state. Thank you, Lucy. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to learn a little bit more about our laws that help asylees, people who are um, running from danger in their native countries. Um, historically, um, the country has had different uh, strategies to deal with asylees. There have been some recent changes. We're going to learn more about that from Valera Gomez, who is a clinical teaching fellow in the Asylum and Human Rights Clinic at UConn Law School. And you can join us, too, especially if you have a question, 860 860- 275-7266 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking about immigration enforcement against people who don't have the legal authorization to live in the U.S., but we wanted to focus now on why people flee their native countries and historically the mechanisms that have formed over the years in the U.S. to help them. In studio with me now is Valeria Gomez, a clinical teaching fellow in the Asylum and Human Rights Clinic at UConn Law School. Valeria, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me, Lucy. You can also join our conversation, 860-275-7266, or find us on 
Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, people that are coming to our southern border, uh, Valeria, many of them are trying uh, to get legal status through asylum. So tell us again uh, of individuals based on our laws, uh, who is uh, eligible to get asylum? So asylum is for people that have found their way into the United States or are at our ports of entry, at our border checkpoints. Um, and it protects people who are fleeing persecution um, from their home countries. So specifically, it's for people that have suffered past persecution or, or have a well-founded fear of persecution um, that their government cannot or will not protect them from. And persecution that's based on their religion, their political opinion, their nationality, their race, or their membership in a particular social group, which is sort of a, a amorphous category. So that description sounds a lot like uh, someone who is technically a refugee, but the difference is an asylum seeker is already um, at our border or maybe even in the country? That's correct. That's correct. And so when we think about our laws, uh, you know, when did uh, the U.S. Uh, determine uh, who could and could not come here, uh, I guess, uh, specifically uh, where there was actually a law in place? Sure. So our laws related to asylum and to refugee status uh, are derived from uh, international obligations that we have related to um, UN conventions protecting refugees. Um, so in 1968, we signed on to what's referred to as the 1967 Protocol, which is essentially a law that extended refugee or a convention, a, a treaty within the UN that extended refugee protection to these these um, categories that I mentioned. In 1980, we passed uh, the Refugee Act, which essentially was put in place to ensure that we were protecting people um, to the fullest extent and that we were comporting with our obligations under that, that treaty. So if someone is fleeing a Central American country, as an example, uh, why not, um, why couldn't they apply to be a refugee? So... Uh, Refugee status is something that you get outside of the country, but it's not necessarily like you can go into, you know, a um, uh, an embassy, a U.S. embassy or, or um, a consulate to just request refugee status. We don't necessarily have refugee camps that administer um, refugee claims in Central America the way that we do in these areas where we hear a lot of refugees, um, you know, requesting refugee status, like perhaps a, a Syrian. Mm -hmm. um, for a while, we actually did have a system in place for Central American minors, um, certain certain qualifying Central American minors. But with the Trump administration, um, that program was eliminated. So we actually no longer have that capacity. And so people who are seeking protection from persecution, the way that they seek it um, is to actually leave their country and to go to the, the safest alternative that they have, which for many people is the United States. And so the uh, asylum seekers that we're seeing at the southern border, tell us some of the reasons why they're coming. We're seeing people that are fleeing because, um, you know, we saw a big increase in 2013 of people that started fleeing because the situation in Central American countries, particularly in Honduras, Guatemala, um, and El Salvador, became untenable. Um, the government, uh, which has been in those countries, which have been rattled from some pretty horrific and long civil wars, um, have been unable to control local um criminal organizations that have essentially become new de facto governments and have um, really terrorized youth and, and young people. And there's also been a, uh, a very tragic um, culture of uh, violence against women. And this has been exacerbated by this this gang culture in which, you know, 
we, we've seen examples of very young women, young girls that have been threatened to become gang property and gang girlfriends against their will. Um, and they're fleeing really unspeakable things. And um, the local governments have been unable to check this type of, uh, of horror. And so that's some of the reasons that we're seeing people come. Mm-hmm. Um, In other instances, we're seeing increases, for example, from countries like Nicaragua, where the um, government is really um, starting to really press down on opposition. And so people who are doing the exact same thing that we do here in the United States, you know, stand up to uh, oppressors and and request things from their government, we're seeing that they're not able to do so and and they're being, um, you know, persecuted for that. Valeria Gomez is a clinical teaching fellow in the Asylum and Human Rights Clinic at UConn Law School. As we uh, learn more about the asylum laws uh, that have been in effect in our country, as well as uh, why people are are coming uh, seeking asylum, you know, I wanted to focus on uh, in the past if someone was seeking asylum, what were they uh, guaranteed uh, to get, so to speak? Uh, was it a, a specific hearing before they're sent back to their country, and how has that changed? So um, there are several ways to request asylum. And as Anelsa was speaking, there's the affirmative way in which you're not necessarily in removal proceedings and you you request it through an interview with uh, the asylum office at United States Citizenship and Immigration Services. But the way the people that we're encountering and the stories that we're hearing from people in the southern border, these are people that are in what's called a defensive uh, process. And these are individuals who would otherwise be subject to something that's called expedited removal. And what that essentially is, it's a summary deportation. So individuals who are encountered near the border or at a port of entry who can't show that they have the proper documents to show authorization to enter the country, they're usually um, just essentially immediately deported after a quick interview um, without a hearing in front of an immigration judge. And so in order to ensure that we're actually complying with our obligation to uh, prevent people from returning to situations where their life and and freedom would be threatened, um, we're supposed to ask them at the border whether or not they have a fear of returning back to their country, if they have a fear of persecution. And if they indicate that that's the case, uh, what we do then is we refer them for what's referred to as a credible fear interview so that an asylum officer who's trained in uh, the laws of asylum of our country can do a very in-depth interview to try to determine whether or not it's likely that this person, if they were given time to accumulate evidence and if they were given time to prepare a case, um, often with legal counsel, whether they'd be able to really demonstrate that they do meet the eligibility requirements and the evidentiary burden in front of an immigration judge. But is that happening? Well, something that's changed recently, um, you know, the, the Remain in Mexico policy referred to as officially the migrant protection protocols have subverted that um, because essentially people are being told after they have this very cursory initial interview um, that they uh, have to be in Mexico and wait for their their hearing, wait for their day in court. What makes that difficult is that in Mexico they have, uh, they may not have access to lawyers. It's unclear to what extent U.S. lawyers are able to practice in Mexico to begin with. Um, they, and in many cases, they're actually still in danger. So we may be actually um, not complying with our obligation to protect people from persecution because we're similarly returning people to a place where they would still be in danger. Their persecutors can still find them. Um, and you know, I, there have been reports of the f- of facts that we're losing track of people who we're supposed to be bringing into court. 
Well, we're getting uh, news from the AP. According to a new rule published in the Federal Register, asylum seekers who pass through another country first will be ineligible for asylum at the U.S. southern border. That rule is expected to go in effect tomorrow. Also applies to children who have crossed the border alone. Um, is this expected? Was this expected, Valeria? Oh, I just learned about this. <laughs> um, I have reason to believe that this is this new rule would have to be challenged. Um, the we we don't there is such thing as a safe third country agreement which is a bilateral treaty that's done in between countries um where it's determined that it would be safe for someone who's seeking asylum if they pass through that country first to request asylum in that country or not um before being able to request it in, in their final destination we only have that agreement with canada at the moment um so to the extent that people are summarily denied asylum because they've passed through a different country, that's not really what our laws call for at the moment. So that would be going against what's in the, the Congress passed statute. Apart from that, we have protections also in the statute for unaccompanied children. Um, unaccompanied children are uh, afforded special protections in terms of procedure, so they don't necessarily have to go through the immigration court as a first step for their asylum claim. But beyond that, we don't return children um, who are not from a um, who are not from Mexico or Canada, precisely because we want to protect them and because we're supposed to be very sensitive to um, risks related to human trafficking. Uh, we might have touched on this, but there's the remain in Mexico policy in effect now. So again, if someone um, is in uh, has a reasonable fear of getting killed, the legal principle is to not return them mm -hmm. to their native country. But um, is that um, actually being violated now as we speak? It's being violated insofar as we're actually supposed to be uh, asking whether they would also be in danger in Mexico. So um, there was a, a recent lawsuit that was filed by the Asylum Officers Union, actually, um, within this month, in which the asylum officers that were that were part of that lawsuit themselves claimed that they were being told not to ask them, um, okay, well, are you afraid of returning back to Mexico? Mm -hmm. um, and so by very technically keeping it to the question of whether or not they were afraid of returning back to their home countries, they were actually getting out of determining whether or not they would be safe in Mexico. Um, so th th it's certainly a concern because there are, you know, it, there are individuals who can just as easily or or still very likely be persecuted because they're in the country of Mexico that doesn't make them safe. Um, and and local, um, I think local crime organizations in Mexico are capitalizing on that. Um, so people live in a lot of fear. There's been a lot of uh, attention and warranted attention on um, some of the conditions that uh, these uh, child asylum seekers um, have been experiencing at the border when they're put in these detention centers. I understand you used to represent some of these unaccompanied minors. You know, what's your take on what you've seen in the last few months? It's really heartbreaking. Um, it's really heartbreaking, particularly when you know you've actually then met these these children and you've met these teenagers, and you know they're they're teenagers just like you and me may have been, um, you know, they have this additional anxiety about whether or not they're going to have to go back to a situation where their life is in danger. But apart from that, it's individuals who are excited about school or are, you know, dreading tests or have crushes on people at school. Um, and we have a real ability, I think, to dehumanize people who we see as others. Um, and unfortunately, that I believe that's starting to include children. Um, that's just from the the emotional perspective, but even from a legal perspective, it's really egregious because again, we have special standards in place um, related both 
from that we get from statutes, but also from a consent degree a settlement agreement that was entered, um, known as the Flores Settlement Agreement, in which you know there was already a lawsuit in the 90s related to the conditions under which we were holding children, and we put these rules in place um, so that they would have to have safe and sanitary conditions, so that they would have to uh, only be held in. ICE detention facilities that aren't meant for children for a maximum of 72 hours and then transferred to a place that was a licensed child care facility that would provide schooling, that would provide recreational services. Um, children are supposed to be held in the least restrictive setting um, for their well-being in light of the fact that they're a particularly vulnerable population um, and they're so subject to, to abuses. Um, and not only are we not complying with that rule, but we're keeping them in really squalid, unsanitary conditions. Um, and there's no telling what kind of, of damage and, and trauma we're causing them under the guise of, of following some laws that you know, are not really necessarily being enforced correctly in the first place. Mm. There's been a lot of outrage. Uh, are you convinced that the administration will make some changes so that uh, the, the children and others aren't kept um, in these kinds of conditions? I'm hoping. Th- I'm hoping that this is going to happen. Um, I think, as a society, um, you know, the United States is particularly sensitive to uh, the plight of children. Um, you know, when family separation happened, there was an outrage as well, and there were changes in policy, at least on the official stance um, regarding whether or not we were going to be enforcing certain, you know, criminal misdemeanors so that we could keep families together. There's a whole lot to say about whether or not that happened as well. But but I do, I am hopeful um, that at least as it relates to the, the detention of children that will, you know, as a country will be vigilant and will refuse to, to accept that this is what can happen um, and that the government will pay attention. Valeria Gomez, again, is a clinical teaching fellow in the Asylum and Human Rights Clinic at UConn Law School. Valeria, thanks for coming in. Thank you, Lucy. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Uh, thanks to Carolyn McCusker on the phones. Kion Wolf is our technical producer. You can learn more about the show at wmpr.org slash where we live. Or if you can't listen live, you can always download our podcast. Just search for where we live on your favorite, favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>